This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Dana Mortensen, co-founder and executive director of World Savvy, with a nonprofit mission to prepare the next generation of leaders to learn, work, and thrive as responsible global citizens in the 21st century, and to support systemic change in K-12 education, to provide every student in every classroom with the knowledge, skills, values, and attitudes to be leaders and change makers in their diverse communities, locally and globally. World Savvy has grown from serving 90 students and 20 teachers in their first year to reaching more than 250,000 youth and 20,000 teachers over their nine-year history from three offices nationally, San Francisco, Minneapolis-St. Paul, and New York. Dana has earned a master's degree in international affairs from Columbia University and a bachelor's in international relations from Connecticut College. Among her many honors, Dana was awarded an Ashoka Fellowship in 2011, an experience we share, and in 2010 received the New Leaders Council 40 Under 40 Award for Entrepreneurship. Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us about the passion that drove you to start World Savvy and the story of how your work got underway. Sure, sure, and thank you so much for having me. It's really, it's, um, it's a, it's a pleasure to be able to talk about the work, especially with someone who I admire so much in the field as well. So thank you. Um, uh, my passion for world savvy really, um, it, my passion for international issues, I should say, started at quite a young age. I did not have a K-12 experience that really embedded much, um, at least in any depth, knowledge about the world and global issues. But my parents, in particular my dad, who was a sociologist and he had lived and worked in Africa, were very involved in um, politics and international issues. And it was very much a part of the dialogue um, growing up. And so um, I became interested in those issues at a pretty young age and sort of knew that's what I wanted to continue on and study. Um, but I was really much more focused on foreign policy. I thought I would end up, you know, I think at some point in my young life, I probably wanted to be the first female president. But I, uh, I ended up finishing undergrad. And when I got to graduate school, I, I took a bit of a turn. I, I, I started to focus less on foreign policy and more on um, uh, development issues, poverty and development. And I met uh, my dear friend Madiha Mershed when I got to graduate school and we went through the first year of school and in the first week of the second year of classes, 9-11 happened um, and Madiha happened to be a Bangladeshi Muslim and um, in the in the wake of 9-11 and I, I grew up in New Jersey and I was working full time at a law firm in New York while, the, while we were in law school. So I was sort of a part of three very different worlds. Um, one that I grew up in that was, I wouldn't na- say necessarily exceptionally global in terms of the worldview of the town and the space I grew up in. Um, and then I was I was working at a large law firm and supervising a group of folks, many of whom had sort of grown up in and around the five boroughs of New York and not not left very often. And so and then I was sitting in class next to Rwandans and and Palestinians and uh, people from South Asia and Africa all over the world who had such really rich lived experience. And in the wake of 9-11, in the, in the couple months that followed, obviously that was a tragedy of enormous proportions, but there was also a, a very 
really dark uh, xenophobic backlash that um, you know it, it, lots of people knew about. But but living in New York City and and particularly being as close as I was with Madiha, she was uh, uh, victimized by that. I mean, she was subjected to some you know verbal abuse and and other things in New York at the time that were really um, uh, shameful because I had come to know Madiha. Um, Medea's worldview is really effortlessly global, and she's extremely passionate and committed to um, serving others and and to a sense of the world where we're all connected and we all support and lift each other up. And so, to see her being treated that way was um, was something that 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 touched me um, in and motivated me. And we started having a lot of discussions. And what was interesting about it is Medea grew up throughout the Middle East, went to high school in Singapore and ended up in the U.S. for college. And, and her reaction to this treatment was she was actually um, more empathetic. You know, while I sort of, I, I felt angry, I felt ashamed. Um, and Medea was incredibly empathetic. I mean, I think there was a part of her that, that knew that this was motivated by fear and in many instances motivated by um, a misunderstanding or a lack of knowledge or a lack of um, exposure potentially. And so we started a long series of conversations and, and the work I had been studying, the issues I had been studying started to feel very much like a Band-Aid. You know, talking about policy and international policy felt very hollow to me when I was looking around thinking, what kind of a citizenry are we developing? I mean, are we really building at scale the kinds of citizens who are able to capably um, and responsibly engage in dialogue about what it means to be part of a global community? Um, we at the time, certainly, this is 11 years ago, did not have very much in K-12 education that taught young people about the world or beyond the knowledge piece taught them skills to interact and, and collaborate and, and correspond and communicate with people across cultures and from different backgrounds um, and, you know, or the values and attitudes and behaviors that would lead to sort of being a responsible global citizen. And so um, that was that was the driving motivation is sort of the, to, to solve this problem, to look, we looked around and felt extremely afraid for our national security, our, our ability to be able to, to, to participate in a global economy that was increasingly interconnected and our workforce was increasingly underprepared um, and just peace and um, harmony on a, even a very local level. You saw census data trending towards much more ethnically and culturally diverse local communities wherever you lived in the United States and, and you still had people that were just really unprepared in so many ways for that. So World Savvy grew from that experience and the passion was fueled by this idea that in the 21st century, our K-12 education system, we shouldn't have to call it global education. It should be implied. You know, it should, one of the, the foundational ways of defining a quality education should include being globally competent, being prepared to enter the world that we live, which is, um, you know, and arguably interconnected and interdependent. So that was sort of the story behind how we got where we were. And, and, and really that same passion fuels me today. I think that there is you know, while we've made tremendous strides, there certainly continues to be tremendous areas of opportunity and a lot more work to be done. Such an inspiring story. And one of the, the key themes there is this idea that we think perhaps in the past we've thought of foreign policy or knowledge of the world as being a specialty or a luxury. And what you're really saying in your work is that this is a fundamental competence that every young person should have as they develop in order to be an effective global citizen. Am I hearing that right? 
Absolutely. I think we, we've worked so hard and, and to your point, really moving this from a nice to have to a need to have. You know, this really for a long time was seen as and I have no interest actually in, in this becoming the next acronym in education. I really do fundamentally believe this should be a framing mechanism, a lens through which the way we educate young people is filtered, that, that we're doing this in math and science and social studies and that it's robust, that it's not just about the knowledge, but it's reinforcing the skill set and because it's, it's essential. It's, you know, you look, we did a market research study last summer and, um, 80% of the 18 to 24 year old Americans that were polled, who are all high school graduates, said that their jobs were becoming more global in nature. Um, 60% of them said they'd be better employees if they had a stronger understanding of different world cultures and could work with other people. The people who had had exposure to this kind of learning were more likely to vote in national and local elections, to volunteer, to seek out news and information about world events. I mean, literally in every sense of the word, um, they were they were more engaged citizens. They were sort of more actively involved in not only their local communities, but in issues that affect us all, whether that's in our backyard or it's across the globe. So I think 100 percent, it's, it's, there's an urgency that for a long time was really seen as a, you know, maybe, maybe we can add this on or, or supplement it in the curriculum as opposed to something fundamental. It's just fascinating to see so many of the issues that you're talking about uh, be echoed right now in the media. Uh, we're having this conversation in the wake of the attacks in Boston, and so many of the same kinds of dynamics are coming, uh, are rising up in terms of people, for example, not understanding, you know, where Chechnya is, and yeah. not understanding who these people are, and right. um, and then uh, of course, unfortunately, all the kind of prejudice that you see from people not having that background. And then the other thing that I often think about and that your work really uh, reinforces is that you need a level of background knowledge to be able to be a critical thinker in terms of analyzing the information flow that you're getting from media. Otherwise, you just can be seduced by people who are giving you partial views of a situation. Oh, 100%. And, you know, I had this conversation because a lot of what we do, we support students through programming and we do international exchange programs, but a lot of what we do is we work with teachers and schools and districts. And, you know, when I was growing up and when you were growing up in, in middle school at that time, because it was what technology allowed, what your teachers told you, the content that was delivered to you within the walls of the classroom was really the totality of, of, of what you had access to. I mean, you could go to the library and you certainly got information from experience outside the school walls, but without the internet and without technology, the flow of information coming to you was much more controlled by who the teacher in the room was and how curriculum was designed to, to be sort of fed to you in a sense. And the, the reality has changed so drastically. I mean, there are literally no barriers to access to information for young people now. And so the entire role of, of what we do of the teacher in the classroom and, and how we design schools and think about learning, that needs to be central. A central premise must be, okay, how are we teaching? How are we facilitating a learning process that allows students to distill that information, think critically about it, and make responsible choices based on those conclusions? And that is a, that's a really different and a, and a really sort of huge challenge in terms of transforming how we think about what an educational environment is and does. And it's it, for exactly the reasons you mentioned. There is a barrage of things coming at young people and at all of us 
um, at all times. And the, the idea is to build critical and creative thinkers and a generation of folks who understand how to make sense of that information and when and where to seek out more and when and where to know when a viewpoint or a perspective has been silenced or is absent or all of those kinds of things. So I think it's incredibly important, you know, especially now. You have a very specific and I, I believe incisive way of thinking about what global competency is in terms of knowledge and skills and values and behaviors. And I think some of these ideas also have a deep impact on a person's ability to demonstrate empathy in terms of understanding someone else. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, drill into that um, concept of global competence and what's inside that package? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think you know, when we first got into the work in the field, and this is something that I have to acknowledge at the outset, is I think global competency is aspirational, and I think it's dynamic. And so I think when we talk about defining it and assessing it, which we do all the time, and lots of people are in that space doing the same, um, we need to keep that front of mind, because by its very definition, it implies that as soon as you think you know something, you probably don't, right? It's, it, it, it's incumbent upon us all, if we're going to be globally competent, that we continue to be vigilant about listening and learning and incorporating that um, and, 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 and allowing ourselves to have nuanced perspectives on things that are informed by new information and new stakeholders. So at its core, it really is about how do you how do you become globally competent in a changing world where environments shift fast and information changes and so on? And so the way that we think about the definition of global competency sort of divides into these quadrants. You have knowledge, which, you know, that, that's, that's a whole range of things like the ability to make connections between historical events and present events, the geographic knowledge, um, an understanding of history, an understanding of um, your own identity and, and context within that history. There's a lot in that bucket. And I think that's where for many years we focused on really kind of trying to understand what students did and didn't know. We really hammered on that knowledge piece. And while it's important, it's, I mean, I think you'd probably agree, it's certainly possible that you could tell me the capital of every country on the planet and every head of state um, and still be xenophobic or still right. still not be open to other perspectives. And so knowledge is, is one piece of it. Um, then you sort of move into this, the skills section of that. And, and that that's about helping people actually build the capacity and the skill set to be able to collaborate with others from diverse backgrounds, Com communication skills, um, cross-cultural communication skills, but just communication skills, even research skills in that new environment I described, you know, this idea that there's a barrage of information, what does critical thinking look like in that space? And so then, and there's a whole range of other skills, being able to understand or, or identify multiple perspectives in a given situation. And, and what you want to do is, um, you know, and I, I like to use a sort of particular strand as an example is taking that to the, the next quadrant of values and attitudes. So if you if as a skill, um, you can identify, um, you know, you can identify which which perspectives are represented in a given, you know, uh, you know, something written that's been given to you or in a conversation that you're having values and attitudes would imply that you, you place a high value on on inclusivity and the ability to access and understand and um, give credence to those perspectives. So in other words, you, you're not just aware of what's at the table, you're, you're, you value the diversity of perspectives and you're aware when something's missing from that equation. And so the values and attitudes section of it is really where you sort of dive in a little bit deeper and say, 
you know, it's great to have knowledge and it's terrific to have skills, but how, where are you placing a priority? So how do you, what is your, how does your worldview prioritize the ability to include lots of voices? And, and then finally in the behavior squadron, how does it motivate how you behave? So we had this interesting conversation about the definition of global competency that's been happening on a listserv of educators I'm a part of. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations about, well, who's to say, you know, you can know a lot about the world and then it, it, you may use that information to make choices or decisions or behave in a way that we wouldn't all consider to be sort of positive or, or con, you know, conducive to global citizenship in a positive way. Um, but the reality is if all these four quadrants are working together and you're sort of building that holistically, the idea is, the, the decision being made or the behavior that's being executed, it, you might ne necessarily agree with it to a T, but that it would be informed by this richness of, I understand, um, I understand the context within which I'm making this decision. I understand the stakeholders involved in this. I know when they're not, when, when the stakeholders aren't present at the table or in the dialogue that I then not only value it, but I behave in a way that I seek out those multiple perspectives so that they can be integrated. Um, those kinds of things. So when this is all working together that helps students or helps adults, frankly, um, figure out how to, um, how to behave in a globally competent way. So um, there's a lot of indicators within each of those buckets that we sort of look for. Empathy is certainly a big, huge piece of it. Um, but I think one of the, the misconceptions about how we define global competency is everyone sort of assumes that, well, that's just, you know, I need to be able to find Iraq on a map. And, and that's predictive of, of some things. And so it's evaluated quite a bit. But the, it's, it's so much deeper. And a lot of it is just sort of basic, you know, very basic things about human understanding and how do you interact with people and how do you understand your own worldview and how self-aware are you about the context within which you make decisions and the bias you bring to conversation and those kinds of things. So um, I think that's how we all put it together. It was probably a little more rambly than you were looking for, but those quadrants are all kind of always working um, working together in a holistic way when we think about how this works well in a classroom. So that's great. And I think what it really underscores is that your definition or your vision of global competence really includes this powerful element of social and emotional learning and Absolutely. what we would call, you know, 21st century skill set that's so essential for success in any kind of organization or career. So it's really looking at the whole child quote unquote, and not just building, uh, we're not just teaching people how to take an advanced placement test in uh, international affairs. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about your, uh, how you got started and, and also about the vision of global competence. And now maybe we could talk a little bit about the methods of engagement. My understanding is that you really have three things that you do in World Savvy. One is all about youth engagement, one about professional development, and then some consulting services that are critical to the whole uh, vision. And so if you could touch briefly on those, maybe we could start with youth engagement and just tell us practically, how do youth get engaged with World Savvy? What do they actually do? Yeah, so um, both of our youth engagement programs really use a project-based learning model. And so we're looking to make um, these kinds of issues really sticky to allow um, lots of rigor in the classroom, but also to create a lot of relevance for students so that we can, we can, they can find ways to step into issues that are very complex and that the, there can be a lot of student-driven um, inquiry around these complex issues. And so the World Savvy Challenge and the Media and Arts Program um, essentially take a, a global theme and we 
have these themes that run for three-year cycles. So we're just completing the sustainable communities theme, and we're coming into a new theme of population and progress. And the themes are meant to be um, extremely roomy. So the sustainable communities theme was meant to have students have a chance to tap into the environmental, economic, social, cultural implications of what it means to build um, and sustain thriving communities that benefit all. And so we had students looking at a, a range of environmental issues, as you might imagine, but we also had students looking at things. We had, we had a, a North High School here in Minneapolis. We had a group of students that examined teenage pregnancy. And if you, you know, and they did that in a variety of areas of the world, which is a requirement of all these programs, but they spent the year kind of examining how that had impacted their own community and can you have a sustainable community if you have, you know, um, a certain percentage of the population who's, you know, who are children having children. Um, and so it was, they, they approach it in lots of different ways. And so in these two youth programs, students spend the year diving very deeply into the, this theme and um, essentially choosing a focus that resonates with them. So in the World Savvy Challenge, it's embedded in the classroom. It's Again, it's a project-based learning model. So they're researching the theme, they're picking a subtopic, and then they work in teams with other students in their class to present solutions at a local, national, and global level to the subtopic that they have picked out. And so um, there is a culminating event. This program also runs online now outside of the cities where we are and also sometimes parallel in the classrooms where these students are. But the idea is it's um, extremely student-driven but very focused on solution orientation. So they're thinking critically, but they're also being creative about how might we address these issues. And then they they sort of go a step further into entrepreneurship and create a knowledge to action plan that could be implementable, implementable in the community. Um, and that's reviewed and analyzed by community judges, both online and in person, that look at all the work that students have created. And um, some of those students actually get um, monetary awards to implement their, their social action projects. And then within the media and arts program, it's a similar process. They're looking at complex global issues and, you know, through this theme, but then they're getting very local, sort of localized in the communities where they're working on it and through um, workshops and field trips that are experiential that really use the community as a classroom, they're introduced to the themes and they're creating visual um, visual and performing arts and media that reflect perspectives on those themes. So the outcomes in the art program are, are just different. They are um, creative expressions through the arts of, of what these students have to say about these issues of consequence. And then most recently in youth engagement, we've partnered with the Department of State a few times to bring groups of students on immersive educational trips to exchanges to bank Bangladesh, uh, two years in a row to look at climate uh, was the issue, and they're in homestays, and they're um, they're engaged in service in a variety of areas of the country, and then they return home um, and uh, create social action projects that they they carry out in their communities. And uh, this summer we'll be going to Peru with a group of students, and it's it's 100% subsidized, so it's actually serving a, a population of youth that, uh, that would otherwise not have resources and opportunity to travel. And so in Peru, they'll be looking at food security is the issue. And so the youth engagement programs are really the primary driver is there. How do you put students in a position to think critically and creatively about these issues and really raise the bar? I think people who are engaged through those programs, there's hundreds of volunteers every year that are a part of that. When they see what these students are thinking of and creating, I think it's um, for anyone who's ever underestimated a young person. This is <laughs> this is something they should probably do because um, it's mind blowing how um, 
how sort of advanced their thinking and nuanced their thinking and creative their thinking is about problems that are entrenched problems that, you know, adults struggle with for, for decades. Um, and then on the professional development side of things, um, are, we are partnering with teachers and schools and districts to understand how do you create um, how do you embed global competency into teaching and learning and create environments that are conducive to building globally competent graduates? And so that also bleeds into the consulting piece of the work, which is sometimes doing that in a much more customized way. Um, so, so that's sort of the trajectory of, of the three and how they work together. Ideally, um, I mean, we're real champions of teachers. I think what we try to do is create wraparound services and support so that you can really begin to see a change in a classroom and a school. Um, and teachers, all of whom enter the profession, you know, passionately committed to making a difference in the lives of their students. And, you know, no teacher goes into the classroom thinking, gosh, I just want to prepare young people for tests. You know, that's not how um, teachers enter the profession. And so we really see ourselves there as a support for those teachers who recognize, I'd love to be able to integrate this, but they have all these pressures and, and so on. And, and we are really a partner in making that a reality in the classroom for them. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Dana Mortensen, founder and CEO of World Savvy. So the, the vision is not just to have students that are globally competent, but also to have educators and educational leaders who have that same level of global competence and can build supportive programming throughout the whole institution toward that it, end. Am I hearing that right? It, it's critical. It's critical. And, and, and to that end, we have just launched, or we will launch in January 2014, but are in development um, for the first online global competency certification for in-service teachers and school leaders in partnership with Columbia University Teachers College. Um, so next January, we'll have the ability through an online program that's an 18-month certification program to really have teachers coming in. Um, they'll be doing academic coursework, global field work, and then these collaborative practice groups with interdisciplinary groups of teachers, you know, so that they can come out the other side with really robust support to make um, make their classrooms look different, you know, and, 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 and help them embed this. So yeah, it's, it's critical. It's a huge piece. Wow. That's, that's really terrific. Um, these professional development institutes, do they, are they offered regionally or do you actually parachute them into a specific schools? How, how does that work? at a practical level? Yeah, great question. So in the regions where we are, they're offered as a matter of course, they're offered um, um, 
periodically throughout this year. I think they'll be offered quarterly. So in San Francisco, in New York, and Minneapolis, it's just a part of core offering where, you know, teachers from anywhere can come to us. This year, because of this online platform that we've just built, um, it's the first year where we can actually reach teachers who are um, not in these these three regions. Um, so there's going to be a lot of online professional development offerings, but then we also do our institutes in other spots when we're invited to. So our outreach strategy is becoming a little bit more proactive outside of the anchor cities where we've been located. And so this year you will find institutes in a variety of other um, cities that we're looking at. Um, and so that's, and then we also, we go to schools and districts where they've made this a priority and they invite us to be there and we can do that anywhere. I want to shift the lens a little bit to, explicitly towards empathy. As you know, Ashoka is involved in promoting empathy education around the globe at the moment and really look, taking a deep look at the work of fellows around the world who are promoting empathy-related education and projects. And obviously, I mean, the story that you told about 9-11 and your relationship with Muslim with a Muslim person and then your empathy for this person, it's sort of key to the whole story of world savvy. And, um, yeah. and it cuts the theme cuts across all your work because, you know, when someone's global, globally competent, it would seem that they are much more likely to have an empathetic understanding or an empathic understanding of, of, of someone that is from a different background. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, uh, empathy in your work, what it means to you and the students and uh, how you see the role of empathy education specifically in this conversation about global competence. Yeah. Um, yeah, gosh, I could talk about this forever. I think uh, if I, as I think about consolidating the thought, and I've had a couple of recent conversations and sort of things that have sparked even additional thinking about this, but, but when I empathy is is critical, it's sort of a, it's it's the foundation of of global competency. And I think about in the past when people thought about um, use the word tolerance a lot. I, I think of tolerance or awareness as sort of this first step of I'm aware that this perspective is there, that you see things this way, and I will allow you. Um, I will allow you to think what you think, you know, and, and that, that empathy is sort of this transcendence. It's, it's the ability to, to go well beyond that, you know, that sort of men modality to say, I have the ability to under deeply understand the perspective of another and that I allow that to inform how I see the world and how I make choices and how I interact with others, um, and, to, and that and it helps me to remain conscious of the impact of what I say and what I do and how I behave in any given environment. And so I think that's it's essential for global competency, but it's just sort of essential for really, really um, sort of quality interpersonal relationships. And um, one of the things that I think with global issues happens quite frequently in this country, and I don't think it's just specific to the United States, but it's where we have the most experiences. There was a there was a piece on Minnesota Public Radio as I was driving in today about um, how we view race in this country and think about it. And there was an anthropologist talking about binary opposition. You know that that with issues like race, we tend to dig in our heels and we see things a certain way. And if another person doesn't, um, th there's it's it's a very difficult subject to meet people in the middle on. And I think one of the things about empathy in the context of global competency is that we do have a tendency, or I have seen a tendency, if you sort of follow news and public reaction to issues, to really want there to be a right and a wrong. 
in every situation and to want issues to be very black and white, um, you know, the good and the evil. And the reality about most of the issues that we deal with, and, and, and when I say we, I don't just mean world savvy, I mean as a globe, <laughs> um, what we're facing, you know, what the world is facing in terms of the, comp, the, the challenges that, that are out there are incredibly complex. And I think in most situations, um, a, a black and a white and a good and an evil and a right and a wrong are are difficult things to pinpoint. And I think that's a challenging space for people. And I think empathy is a crucial ingredient to be able to sit to be comfortable in that space, <laughs> to know that um, the world and the issues that we're confronted with are are in many, many instances, shades of gray, and that we need empathy is critical to be able to understand how are people coming at this issue? And how can I really deeply understand the perspective of someone who is engaged in the same issue with we who me who I may on the surface be diametrically sort of opposed to in for whatever reason. Um, I think that's one of the things that makes empathy so important in the work that we do. And when I see it as it evolves as a part of global competency is this idea that that these are complex, really, really complicated things. And it's so important um, that in order to be comfortable in that space, we continue to understand how people, how others approach issues and how others, their own rich backgrounds and experience um, contribute to the way that they think and see the world um, since we're in it together. You know, so that, that's sort of what's been on my mind lately mm. because I see it manifested pretty frequently in the work. Just so profound what you just said. And I think that so much of that learning can only happen in a project-based environment where there's real experiential stuff happening and where there's really encounter. When I think yeah. one, of the, one of the things that uh, depresses me is, is when, and I see this with my own children, where knowledge is reduced to this multiple choice uh, test oh, and it's just drained of the human experience and and then all the opportunity for that kind of really deep learning about complexity and perspective and and uh, that leads to the insight that yes we are it, it's a world community and we're all members and we affect each other you know in ways that are uh, very hard to understand um, yeah you, you can't access that without having a much more diverse and engaging way of, of learning than what we're doing in most schools today, unfortunately. Oh, gosh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, I'd like to look towards the future. We know you're a passionate social entrepreneur and every entrepreneur lives uh, with one uh, step you know, towards tomorrow. So tell us, what do you see for the future of World Savvy? What are your um, uh, big, hairy, audacious goals? Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, from starting with at the very, very kind of 30,000 foot level, the vision is really I, I would like to wake up 10 years from now and to have global competency be an assumed, um, a, a prioritized and foundational um, piece of how we define a quality education so that it's assumed when when high school graduates leave, um, you know, leave and go off into the world in whatever capacity they do that global competency is something that we sort of expect and require um, of education. And so I think moving toward that goal and really we're sort of we're in this bucket of a group of global education organizations now, but I think I mean, I guess what I'd like to be is is I'd like to be able to drop the global because it's it's implied in everything that we do um, because I think it has to be. So so that's at a high level what we're moving towards. And then 
specifically our kind of big, hairy, audacious goals are we're, we're in the process of becoming accredited, um, an accredited educational institution so that all the things that we're offering, actually, we have the, the capacity to dispense credits to students and teachers that are participating. And I mentioned this um, work towards building this global competency certification, because really what we want to be able to do is to set the standard in the field and to bring a lot of amazing organizations that are doing work um, that are related to this effort under the same tent to say, this is what it means to be globally competent, and this is what it looks like when it's done well, and to also, because as I've mentioned, it's aspirational and dynamic, create a community of learners where there's a lot of um, documentation of process that people can take a look at. So much to your point about the multiple choice, um, a lot of those things we're creating, that certification program is an effort to say, um, we, you know, we're going to, we need to keep learning. And so, and we're, you know, whatever we produce this year may be different in a couple of years and we've got to get teachers really comfortable in that space. So those are big, big projects we're working on. And then we're kind of in this very interesting transition from being very hub and spoke in the three cities where we're anchored to moving a lot of our work um, into a truly national um, arena. And so the online platform is the, the first step in that, but we're starting to do a lot more advocacy work around, um, the, the U.S. Department of Education released their first ever international strategy a couple of months ago, which made global competency in K-12 education a priority. And so that's an amazing opportunity we'd like to leverage to be sure that that's implemented and that that um, sort of sort of it, it, we, that, that we have the opportunity to make that as robustly implemented as it can be. And so that's where we'll spend a lot of our time. Yeah. Fascinating, particularly the idea about accreditation. Can you say a little more about that? How do you go about becoming accredited for this kind of work? Yeah, well, it's a it's a complex process, but with the advent of, of sort of uh, many more online educational offerings, I mean, the, the the more traditional systems that had brick and mortar schools being the only accredited institutions is shifting quite a bit because it has to. And um, I think with um, the the cost of higher ed and some of these other things happening, I think a lot of the programs that our students are are participating in and our teachers are participating in are really rigorous, you know, and they're um, you know even to the extent they're happening in class. There's a lot of things outside of class, particularly those traveling extensively for immersive experiences um, that sort of have, they, they would have the ability to access academic credit, which can be applied towards high school graduation and potentially college. And so I think it's, it's sort of a nod to legitimizing that this is this kind of learning is um is is really essential and should be seen as part of the core yeah. um and it also it's also just an incentive it's another um you know teachers need to be able to get professional development hours and continuing education credits and so on and so um to have the 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 potential to be able to do that across the country wherever we are independently um is is really key so so that's the motivation behind it, yeah. We're coming to the end of our time, and what I'd like to do is just shift the lens one more time towards social entrepreneurship. As an Ashoka Fellow and as a practicing social entrepreneur, we're going to have a lot of our listeners would be people who are aspiring social entrepreneurs, and try to we'd like to try to share a little wisdom uh, from experience with those listeners. And so this could be about anything, any advice that you would have, but I read a really great interview that you gave recently about something that's really in the public mind, which is about the balancing of work and life. Oh, yeah. You know, particularly with the um, 
the person at Facebook who, who has written a whole book about right. um, how this happens, particularly with motherhood. And I, I know that you're a relatively recent mother, so congratulations. Yeah, I, thank you. I have four children of my own, so I know how tremendously challenging it can be to balance oh, yeah. parenthood with your your social entrepreneurship passion. Yeah. But you talked very, I think, um, inspiringly about how you stay in the moment. I wonder if you could share a little of those thoughts and, and anything else that you have in the way of advice. What is it that, that allows you to work through the hard, the hard places? Because in this work, there really are a lot of hard places and you have to have uh, some grit. Yeah, that is a great question. And I think you're probably, you're referring to our, our friends at Culture Baby. I, I'm a big fan of their work. And I, we were talking about... Um, just that. And I think um, as a social entrepreneur, you know this well, um, the, the path, it's an all encompassing thing. You know, you don't, it's not a nine to five endeavor. And so being in the present and, and living in the present and, and uh, um, experiencing that so that you're not always thinking about your 2015 or 2017 strategic plan and what's next and what's next is, um, it's it's difficult. I mean, for me, uh, I speaking personally for me, that's a struggle. And so, for having children really um, puts such a finer point on that. I mean, I think um, they they are they grow up really fast and they develop really fast. And there's all these things happening. And so, I think I've made right now. Um, I think I'm making an effort to. There's so many topics related to my work that I could literally sit here for 48 hour marathons to <laughs> talk about. I'm sure that you feel the same way. You know, yeah. you're like overflowing with the passion, but almost to find ways to temper that and direct it, um, and also sort of let it take a backseat and just breathe and and be sometimes. And I think being a parent has at least highlighted my desire to be able to do that more. I would not say that I have it perfected, but there's sort of small tricks that I'm trying to use to be able to be sure that when I'm in that space that I, you know, that I'm, I'm present. I'm present for what's happening with my family. And, and I also think the other piece of it in social entrepreneurship, at least now I'm, I'm 11 years into work with World Savvy is, is, is keeping perspective and really kind of, I think we're in that part of our growth where I think of World Savvy as kind of a teenager that's just coming into adulthood, you know, in terms of our life cycle and our age, you know, and, and that um, we've learned so many lessons. And I think keeping perspective and, and really being able to think at any phase in the development of your endeavor about what are you really good at and sort of being able to be honest, you know, be honest with yourself and, and to be aware and, and to be able to sort of not try and be absolutely everything to everyone, but to know what are we really good at and what should we develop and, and where maybe aren't we so strong and what should we, you know, you know, shift our focus around because I think especially I mean, you're probably on a million listservs as well. There's like an article a minute about this is happening and this is happening and this is happening. Right. And so for people who are social entrepreneurs sort of, it's, you know, embedded in their DNA, that can be a very, that can bounce you around and turn you around a lot. And so I think those two parallel efforts, trying to be more present and focused doesn't mean that obviously I'm not thinking about the future because you have to do it. Um, but trying to sort of be honest and have a lot of perspective about where we are at any given point and, and what we should take on and what we can do really well. So, um, you know, that's, that's again, a subject I could talk about for a really long time, but I think, I think it's important because I think I, I don't feel, um, people talk a lot about burnout, but I think if you're a social entrepreneur, like it never really crosses. I mean, certainly, I guess it's crossed my mind at different times, but what propels me and what probably compels you to do your work as well is like, 
there seems to be this sort of unending source of like, you know, and when I tend to get run down at different areas of the work, like there are areas of my work that would run me down more than others. Um, I really look to building a team that can lift us up and lift the work up because it's, you know, it's not a, a one woman show by any means. We've got an amazing team behind all the work. So that's another thing that I, I'm really trying to focus on doing as well. So important. I, and I think those two ideas are so related. The idea that ch- having children can really uh, be a very humbling experience because it introduces you to your limitations. But, there, yeah. but there is a there is a huge uh, opportunity zone in your limitations because a personal limit is always a chance to build to build a stronger team. So that that yeah. is. Yeah. So and I, I think you touched on humility, but I, I would say to you know, future entrepreneurs or even current, like I talk to a lot of people who are starting up initiatives and kind of getting into the field. And I think that's something that you really want to hang on to. Like it's a hum, it's humbling. What we do is humbling. There is so much to learn and, you know, the learning curve is inverted. And I think if you lose the humility, you, you actually stop, you, you cease to be able to really listen and learn to things that would help you do what you do better. Um, and it can really trip you up as a social entrepreneur. And so I think that's a, that's a really key thread as well. Well, this has been a terrific conversation, Dana, and people who want to support your work can find you at worldsavvy.org and also on Facebook. Are you on Facebook? Yes, we sure are. Yeah. Okay. And we'll put up those links on our uh, podcast webpage as well. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you and thank you so much for your leadership in this critical work and for being our guest today. And thank you so much. I'm such a big fan of your work as well. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.